Welcome to Digging In with Missouri Farm Bureau. I'm Eric Bull, Director of Public Affairs. Today we are joined by Spencer Tuma, our Director of National Legislative Programs. Hello, Spencer. Hey, how are you? Doing well. It's a nice day here in mid-Missouri, finally. Yes, feels uh, like spring. After um, the many, many degrees below zero, we're now up to like 65 or 70 today. So Fantastic. Quite a day. And BJ Tanksley, our Director of State Legislative Programs, is also with us today. How are you doing, BJ? Doing great. Thanks for having me. It's a, it is a beautiful day. We were back and forth from the Capitol today, and it was uh, hard to come back inside. There's a few piles of snow still out there, but I think they'll disappear pretty quickly. Yep. Well, uh, I'm glad to be leaving them behind. No, no Me too. Fun while it lasted, wasn't it? Uh, uh, speak for yourself. <laughs> I couldn't so, get my car yes, at my driveway for like 10 days. It's, yeah. a, it's always a shock to the system when fe- when winter comes back in February, and this one was a extreme for everyone. I yeah, think. not and a fan. It comes back like it was never really here in the first no. place. Thought that we had escaped the whole thing, and then all of a sudden, here we go. No kidding. Well, yeah, we do have a lot that's been happening both at the state capitol um, and in D.C., but we'll start with D.C., Uh, There's some developments there just this afternoon. Spencer, why don't you bring us up to date? Yeah, so just today, uh, we're recording this on a Tuesday afternoon. So um, just today, the U.S. Senate did confirm um, Tom Vilsack to be the new secretary at USDA. Um, So that hopefully will set things in motion for things to kind of start start taking place and getting implemented at USDA. I know that I've mentioned this on a couple other programs that I've done, but there has been a temporary freeze on the Coronavirus Food Assistance Program or CFAP program through USDA that was put in place when the new administration took office. Um, So hopefully now that Secretary Vilsack is confirmed, they'll be able to complete the required interagency review of that program and, and start getting that back up and running so that those payments can get processed. Yeah, and I don't think that anybody really expects there to be a problem getting that to happen. It's just a matter of how long it's going to take to make it work. There was certainly a lot of speculation when the program was first frozen that they were going to take the payments away or they were going to stop them completely. And so, you know, we have been in touch with American Farm Bureau. We've been in touch with USDA as well as our congressional delegation. They've all assured me that that's not the case, that this is just a temporary hold on the program. It's actually pretty common for new administrations to do this, particularly when there's a transition of power. So um, Secretary Vilsack did mention it in his hearing that he expects this to be kind of a, a short delay. So hopefully that is the case and we'll be back up and running soon. Yeah, and he was approved by a pretty wide margin um, in the Senate. So I think that most people are expecting him to be able to hit the ground running there uh, at USDA. There are some things, though, that are going through USDA that mm-hmm. are pretty controversial at this point um, and included in the stimulus bill that they're negotiating. You know, some things about uh, minority farm uh, farmers uh, re- relieving their loans mm-hmm. at even more than 100% of the loan value that I think are going to be hard to navigate for him. Yeah. Um, do you think that those things are, are going to end up making it through, or what do you think? So the stimulus bill is very much in flux at this point at the federal level. Um, you mentioned the provisions for minority farmers. There's a lot of other provisions in there as well, including a proposal to maybe raise the federal minimum wage, which is something Farm Bureau is adamantly opposed to. You know, what's happening right now, kind of the state of play, is the House has considered most of the reconciliation bills, the, the, the stimulus bills, 
through their various committees, and the House is expected to take a vote on final passage of that bill this week. Now, it's very likely that the bill is going to pass the House as is, because that Democrats have a pretty significant, not huge, only about 10 or so, uh, but they do have a large enough margin in the House that there's virtually no way that Republicans are going to stop that train. The power really lies in the hands of the United States Senate, and that's where everybody kind of has their attention trained to. So if you're just catching up on the budget stimulus reconciliation deal, um, it's, it's called a lot of different things, so I'll kind of use those terms interchangeably. But what's happened is the Biden administration proposed a $1.9 trillion stimulus proposal to provide aid um, to individuals who are impacted and companies, businesses that were impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic. So um, they introduced that and then the United States Senate is now held by Democrats. And so there's a very, very slim margin in the U.S. Senate. The vice president actually casts the deciding vote because the margin is so slim. The Senate Democrats, who are now in leadership, are trying to move the stimulus bill through a process known as budget reconciliation, which is basically a fancy term for they only need to get 50% of votes to pass the bill. Now, normally in the U.S. Senate, you have to meet a 60-vote threshold in order to end debate on legislation and then move to final passage. Basically, under this process, that whole thing is waived. So they only need 51 votes in the U.S. Senate, which they have, the Democrats have 51 votes with Vice President Harris breaking the tie, but the margin is really, really thin. And so things like the minimum wage, for example, are really hot button issues that even members of the Democratic Party can't necessarily come to an agreement on. Um, so it kind of remains to be seen if, if, that, if those kind of things will be included ultimately in the bill. Yeah. <clears throat> Speaking of the minimum wage, I think that that's one of the biggest issues that will be involved yep. in this conversation. Do you think currently is do they have the votes in the house to get it through um, i mean that is such a controversial mm-hmm. topic that it would seem to me like that's not even easy with a small margin of i mean clearly they have the majority um and then also i'm hearing that on the senate side that there's some senators maybe even a former mm-hmm. presidential candidate that is maybe. saying that it has to be included or this thing doesn't pass right um I'm just from the outside looking in, that sounds like a recipe for this thing probably not passing at some point. Right. So um, this is completely amateur political speculation. So I won't make a lot oh, of you're broad predictions. No You've broad been here for predictions. several years. <laughs> I won't make a lot of broad predictions, but I do think the minimum wage provision probably passes the House of Representatives. Okay. I think that I think that it probably goes through the House. Um, in the Senate, there so there's a couple of different questions. The fundamental question, and I think what will be interesting, is there are some members of the Senate who don't believe that this provision is even valid under the rules of reconciliation. Mm-hmm. So they don't un, under reconciliation rules, you can only consider items that are directly related to the budget or germane to the question. Oh, which my. as you know, <laughs> we've as been being playing the, loose with that yeah, game for a while. Yeah, and and sure. and that game is played loosely at the state level and the federal level, as you well know. Um, but there may be an effort. My understanding is. The first kind of hurdle is whether or not it even is legally allowed to be included. And and honestly, I think so. So they are waiting. They're going to have to wait for a ruling by the Senate parliamentarian on mm-hmm. that. And then what is possible is the Senate could vote to override the ruling of the parliamentarian. Right. Which they're calling like the mini nuclear option or something mm-hmm. like that. But um, it would in a way almost partially it would partially get rid of the filibuster um, for legislation. 
because you could then put anything through mm-hmm. with reconciliation, yeah. whether or not it's tied to the budget. But um, it, it's pretty unlikely that they're going to do that because there's probably some Democrat uh, senators who would vote against doing that. Yeah. And so I, I really honestly think you might see a lot of senators who are privately hoping that it gets ruled out of order. Uh, the minimum wage, so they don't so take they the get vote on it. off of the bill, yeah, and they don't have to vote on it. Um, and then it's <laughs> they get to say, "Well, I would I would have loved to, but you know, the, these darn rules wouldn't let mm-hmm. us." Um, so we may see some things like that. If too. if I look into my crystal ball, I guess I I would say that it probably does not get through this stimulus bill. Now, I I do think it's going to get retried. Um, but one thing we have to remember, and I've I've tried to remember this as we've kind of transitioned majority minorities over the last couple of months. You know, previously, I had only worked in this role when Republicans were in control of the United States Senate. And there were a lot of initiatives, healthcare is one of them, where you have one or two people within your party that can really tank a bill, mm-hmm. right? We saw it happen with the American Health Care Act uh, in 2017, I believe, or 2018. And so um, the Democrats have the same problem. They have members of their party who don't think $15 an hour minimum wage at the federal level is a good idea, and they're pretty vocal about it. Um, and that, in this case, with the margins are this slim, every vote counts, and and I just don't think they have enough to get it through like this. And, and yeah, when that is when you've got a 50-50 <laughs> split, 50 plus one, Everybody's a kingmaker. Yeah, right. Well, and that is something that we actually have policy about. And mm-hmm. I believe American Farm Bureau does as well, talking about minimum wage of policy. And, and that's why we spend so much time talking about it, because it is something that we care about, our farmers and our members care about, um, and why we're talking to folks about it, of why this is. And the reason I was talking about it and asking is I think that's a monumental change that it, it seems like I, I know that we've been into under this administration and these legislators for a couple of months now. But, man, that's a big change to be talking about with not a lot of full debate. And I know right. if the political process is different in different places, but we're talking about some major changes here. Um, I will just say I hope we don't get too comfortable doing some of these major changes without full-fledged debate of the issue. Right. No, I think you're exactly right, BJ. And President Hawkins recognizes that this is a really, really important issue for Farm Bureau members. He actually wrote a letter last week to our entire congressional delegation asking him to oppose um, raising the federal minimum wage, either through the reconciliation process or through regular order as a standalone bill. Um, it's just something that our members feel very strongly about. Um, we don't think that the federal government should set those minimums. And, and to be quite honest with you, agriculture jobs are fairly competitive when it comes to pay, and, and we just think the government needs to stay out of that fight. Well, and what it doesn't take into account is that the economics of a wage are completely different in different areas of the country. Exactly. And to paint with such a broad brush, you know, in some areas, 15 may be nowhere near enough uh, for a substantial living, and in other places, it is. Yeah. And, and so I think that's what's kind of left out of this conversation when you try to bl- paint the whole United States with, with a specific wage. Obviously, we all know the economic impacts of that, but it's also short selling the fact that different areas, mm-hmm. that money means a completely different topic. Right. And, Stim- oh, go ahead, Eric. Uh, uh, yeah. And also, it's not just agricultural jobs, yep. it's the rural economy in general. Exactly. You know, yeah. The cashier working at Casey's, if they're starting at $15 an hour, I'd be pretty surprised. Um, a lot of our small towns, the 
lower wage jobs are a lot below where that fifteen dollars mm-hmm. are, and and it gets them by uh, at least you know as an entry level position. So stimulus bills are are in addition to adding things like minimum wage and things onto that. Stimulus bills are just so darn complicated to understand. I mean, we know that because we read the headlines, but even when you really dig into it, there's just so much that gets included in these bills. Um, and so, and there's a lot of things that are still really controversial issues related to COVID that are still not totally worked out. Things like liability protections for companies and unemployment insurance. You know, those are all things that Republicans and Democrats haven't been able to agree on since last spring when COVID started. Here we are almost a year later. We're still arguing about it. Um, It does sound like Congress intends to, or, or the goal of congressional leadership is to have a bill to the president's desk by the first to mid part of March. Yeah. So um, no, we'll see. Let me check, let yeah. me check my calendar. It is February 23rd, yeah. so I guess we'll check back in. But um, supposedly that is the timeline that they are working under. So that's yeah. kind of an update on the on the state of play. That's taking up a lot of the oxygen in the room in Washington. Other than, and I mentioned the confirmation process. Um, you know, Michael Reagan, who's the administrator designate for the EPA, he had his hearing in the Senate a couple weeks ago. Catherine Tai, she's the nominee for the U.S. Trade Representative. Her hearing is later this week. Um, so between stimulus bill and congressional or confirmation hearings, um, there's there's certainly a lot of things going on in Washington. Yeah. Uh, you all, We also did uh, work on a letter that we sent to the delegation mm-hmm. about the overall priorities that we have for this year. What are some of the highlights of those that we haven't touched on? Yeah, great question. So a couple of weeks ago, President Hawkins wrote a letter to our delegation uh, kind of following up, you know, our virtual annual meeting was, of course, in December, and then AFBF's annual meeting was held in January virtually as well. And so we really took a deep dive into some of the issues that were existing in our policy book and and new things that were added by our delegates, as well as new things into the American Farm Bureau policy book, and really tried to get that into a, a digestible, if you will, format to share with our congressional leaders so they kind of know what we're using as a map for the the next year. The first thing is energizing the rural economy. Everything from rural development to broadband to transportation, those are all things that Farm Bureau has focused on for a long time and we will continue to do so. Another one is livestock market structures. We've talked about that on this podcast before. You know, there are a lot of issues exposed with concentration in the livestock industry and the processing industry, uh, starting with the Holcomb plant fire and then followed up by the pandemic about six months later. So uh, a lot of, lot of issues to unpack there. Regulatory reform is a big one, trade, um, and then, believe it or not, starting conversations to lay the groundwork for the 2023 Farm Bill. Yeah, it seems like it just happened, but it always comes around really quickly. Yeah. All right. Well, a lot of things going on there, but there's also a huge list developing on the state level. So Things are getting fun in <laughs> Jeff City. Yeah. It's they, that time of year. They keep on having like COVID issues and then snow. And, Snowmageddon, as yeah, I call it. All yeah. these different things that are postponing um, and the session. And filibusters. Oh, <laughs> so fun. Everything's piling up. So we've got a huge stack of stuff now um, that has to get done in the state legislature. Uh, let's start off with uh, talking about property rights, BJ. Where are we with the eminent domain legislation? Yeah, today, um, today actually was a big day for the uh, for our property rights, our number one issue related to property rights, which is um, making sure that eminent domain is not used for merchant transmission lines. We've talked about this several times. We're talking about lines that are really, for the most part, looking to move energy across Missouri into other areas of the United States. Um, they are 
to be fair, dropping a little bit of energy here, but that's not the main goal of the project. Um, today, House Bill 527 by Representative Hafner um, was actually perfected on the House floor, and, oh. and that was a big deal. It was a big day for us. That is the first step um, towards passage from the House. I shouldn't say first step, but first time on the floor. The next time it goes to the floor, it'll actually probably be third read. It was a voice vote today, and we'll have a record vote when it is third read. I would expect that to happen um, either Thursday or next Monday. That's kind of the usual way the calendar rolls. Wow. Um, so that's a big deal. We're excited about that. That's our number one issue related to property rights, and that is just making sure we're not seeing the use of eminent domain for projects that are largely for private gain. Um, there is a little bit of energy being spent around here to save some people's energy rates, um, but at the same time, that's not the main goal of the project. And this is a privately owned company, not governed by the PSC. And so that is a major deal. A big win for us. Like you said, there's been a lot of delays. We've seen um, a couple, we had a week where we didn't have session because of a COVID outbreak. Uh, we had a week last week where session was interrupted by the snowstorm. But um, here we are, we're about two or three weeks from the spring break um, break, which is kind of the unofficial halfway point, and we're going to start seeing some things really get um, that final move or that first movement towards spring break right now. So, so excited about that. So after those steps, uh, where will that bill stand? So that bill will then proceed to the Senate. Um, Senator Jason Bean from Southeast Missouri actually has the, the companion bill on the Senate side. Now, the companion bill hasn't um, moved quite as far yet. Um, we all know the Senate's where it was held up before, um, but that's just because of the number of the Senate bill. They go in numerical order when they're referring bills and hearing them in committee. Um, and so this bill will probably actually become the vehicle when it goes over to the Senate, uh, where we'll be putting a four, full court press on to uh, to get this passed this year. As any of our members know and our listeners know, this is an issue we've talked about for several years. Uh, we really look to hopefully have it finally addressed this year. A lot of people say it's just about this one project, and I thought it was really interesting when we were having testimony in the committee on this bill. There was actually a, um, a supporter of the bill who came forward and said that Missouri lands between uh, energy seekers and energy producers um, and if we if we allow these kinds of projects we we could see lots of these they'll go across yeah. the state and this person was really excited about the idea that lots of projects similar to this could be could be taking people's land through eminent domain to cross the state of Missouri uh, and to make profits off let's be honest the um, East Coast which is willing to pay more for their energy than we are um, and I don't think Missouri landowners want to see that happen mm -hmm. we don't want to see Missouri become kind of the runway for energy energy to other areas. Now, do we want to block it from happening? Absolutely not. And that's not fair that you'll hear from some people is that we don't want these kinds of things to happen. We just believe that if this is a truly a viable option, that the landowner should be a true partner in this project and they should be rightly compensated for what they're mm -hmm. giving up. Um, we see similar infrastructure projects being offered way higher dollars for the land use um, than this this project is willing to do. And I think that's, that's, a, that's something we shouldn't let go of is we're not saying no to the project, but we we should have those landowners being rightly compensated, and they should truly be seen as a partner in this project and not being rolled over through the power of eminent domain, which, as we all know, is the ultimate power of government. I've always found the argument, BJ, you mentioned this, the argument that this is just about one single project so interesting. So oh, when yeah. you said that just now, I kind of had to laugh because that's what we've been saying all along, right? That that this, this has 
future impacts. If, if we allow this one, it opens it up to allowing this to happen in the future. And you're exactly right. And, and I guess, you know, we've been trying to make that point this yeah. whole time. So Absolutely. And it's easy to isolate it and make it feel like that's yep. the case. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about as we look towards the future of energy, and this also affects national policy. Mm-hmm. When you talk about the influence of solar and, and wind power, and they're going to have to move it from the places where that's generated to the places where it's wanted. Um, and we are truly in the middle of that. Right. Yeah. And I think overall, you know, from an energy perspective, and, and we don't have to get into this today, but we saw the issues that existed during the snowstorm and particularly in the south in Texas. And I think there is going to be a lot of broad conversations about energy production and consumption in the United States. Yeah. And it's all going to play into conversations that we're having at the state level, too. Yes. Yeah, just, uh, just today, I think I, I saw a, an article in the Post-Dispatch that was allegedly a news article <laughs> that uh, the first paragraph said something, started something along the lines of just days after Texas uh, had widespread power outages caused by not enough electricity, Missouri lawmakers voted to kill this project that would have delivered all this electricity. I'm like, Come on. I mean, first of all, this has been something we've been fighting against for like a decade. Mm-hmm. Right. But, uh, for some time now. Yeah, this is really, that is not what this is about. And um, there is a principle that really matters here, and that is the right to your own property. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I hope what we saw brings up the, the idea that we have to have reliable energy. And yeah. we all hope that renewables can be the future and that the battery power gets there. But I think one of the major things we learned is we're not there right now. Sure. We have to have power that at some point you can flip a switch and get the generators going and get people powered. Luckily, the things that were horrible didn't last a supremely long time. But if they were to last longer, that could have been a real disaster. Well, I know for those yeah. who were impacted, it, it was. It felt like yeah. forever. But, yeah. but if it had lasted longer, if we hadn't been a week long really <laughs> cold, if we'd have been a lot longer than that, it could have really been wide, exactly. bad. Exactly. Yep. Mm-hmm. Well, there's quite a bit going yeah, on also let's move on. with uh, transportation could be and here all day. Uh, infrastructure issues. Um, where are we seeing on that? Yeah. Um, so we actually saw a transportation funding option um, voted out of the Senate committee in the last few weeks, and it is now um, ready to be debated on the Senate floor. I don't believe we've had any conversation on the Senate floor actually formally about it yet, but that's one of the major issues kind of behind the scenes that's being talked about is the idea of trying to increase funding for our transportation system. We know that our statewide leaders are largely supportive of trying to get more infrastructure funding. This mm-hmm. is something Farm Bureau has been talking about for some time. Again, another one of those issues. Um, but this is there seems to be a little bit of a renewed hope. Um, Senator Schatz is the handler of the bill on the Senate side, obviously has all, long-term been a, been a supporter of increasing funding. Um, but we'll see how it works out. Uh, there hasn't been the movement yet on the Senate, or on the House side, I should say. Unfortunately, we're hoping to see that movement on the House side. Uh, we need to see that support because obviously any bill has to go through both. Um, but we're really hoping to see an increase in, in transportation funding that secures funding for the future. You know, some time ago, the governor and the legislature worked together on a proposal to get some GR revenue funding, which did help kind of bridge the gap. Yep. And speaking of bridges, helped it bring the built bridge a few of those over, too. The, yeah. over, the, uh, or over the Missouri River there on I-70. Um, but hopefully um, that's not a long-term funding option. Option, that GR is going to be pulled on from every direction. Um, and what we need is a secure funding stream into the future. Right now, the legislature is actually looking at some models out of other states, including South Carolina, uh, where they increase transportation funding by a couple
couple of cents a year for several years to equal, I think they did 10 or 15 cents. And then they actually offered a rebate model back for um, for their citizens. And I think Missouri's actually kind of looking at that idea. Uh, Missouri Farm Bureau doesn't have specific policy exactly on that idea, um, but we're interested in it and looking at seeing how that option would play out in the state of Missouri and really looking forward to that debate continuing in the legislature. Yeah, there's a lot of other things that uh, we're keeping an eye on that would help our State Department of Agriculture remain strong mm -hmm. uh, with the the tools in their toolkit to help farmers when necessary. Uh, what are some of the things that we're working on on that? Yeah, um, f for first, the, the just this week and uh, one last week, we did um, some hearings on some tax credits that are actually set to expire, including the meat processing tax credit, which has helped support our small and medium-sized mm -hmm. processors across the state of Missouri. Um, that actual credit is not all that old. It's uh, three or four years old and just been going into effect, but it has had a great impact on some of our small and medium-sized processors, and we just have been hearing some bills to try to extend that for five years into the future. And also the MASBITA tax credit program, the other MASBITA tax credit programs, including uh, new generation tax credits and ag product utilization tax credits. Um, just one of those things. We talk about it a lot, whether you're talking about the MO5 initiatives mm -hmm. or some of the ag impact studies, of trying to increase that impact of agriculture and making sure we're getting that value added here in the state of Missouri. Um, and these programs have done a great job of that, whether it's through ethanol or biodiesel or our, pack, or our processing plants, of making sure that we hold that final product here from the state of Missouri. Um, and, and we're taking some steps in that direction and seeing largely some good momentum on those. Uh, the other would be we have to bring, um, because of some new EPA standards, we have to bring our private pesticide applicator training program um, into, into line. And those bills have been filed and expect some movement on those relatively soon uh, to make sure that MDA continues to be the one administering the program. We don't have the EPA come in and take over it, uh, that we're continuing to um, educate our, our our private applicators to an extent that the EPA requires um, and that works for all of our agriculture. So there will be some changes there, but but we're looking forward to, and it's something we've been talking about and working with the Department of Ag in the background for some time to make sure they bring a bill that works for agriculture and for them. So I'm um, pretty excited about some of those things. Very good. Um, one more thing we'll jump to yeah. here is uh, the feral hog issue. Where are we seeing yeah. uh, some movement on that one? It, well, it wouldn't be a state legislative session if we didn't get to talk about feral hogs. So, um, Amen. <laughs> That actually is something uh, the last few days have been heard in both House and Senate committee uh, to increase the penalty for transporting or releasing or holding feral hogs. And this is something, um, if you remember, um, we had a, a task force or a committee working, working group. on. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> we named them all the clever names, working group task force or whatever the box may be. Uh, but looking at the issues revolving around feral hogs from those impacted counties, um, and these bills would increase the penalties. And that's something Farm Bureau has had policy on for some time, um, that we have to make sure with all these efforts that we have going on to eliminate feral hogs, we don't need someone going back behind those efforts and re-releasing yep. them. And I think that's a major step forward. And we have to make sure um, that that penalty is steep. And this would raise it to a felony, um, which, as you know from your legal background, the prosecutor would still have some discretion yeah. whether they let that be plead down. That's not always going to be the mm -hmm. full extent, but that does raise the profile of it and the ability. So if you had a habitual offender or someone you knew who was a real bad actor, you could actually throw that you could uh, legitimately throw the book at them and make sure that they really feel the, the yeah. heat of it. What people don't understand is, yes, a felony is a major violation, 
But the fact is, these feral hogs do great damage across the state. They do thousands of dollars. We actually had a a farmer from Wayne County in a committee just this morning, and he testified yesterday to it as well, that he's had over $100,000 in agricultural losses from feral hogs. And I know that's not unique just to him. Um, And and we also have had members talk to us about the fact that in some of these hog-impacted areas, productive land is actually hard to come by. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of federal land, there's a lot of state land, and there's, let's be honest, not a lot of productive land available, whether Mm -hmm. it's forest or otherwise. And these feral hogs could put folks in those areas completely out of business. If you continue to have your pastures or your fields completely ravaged by feral hogs, um, you're not going to keep being able to afford to put those back in. So um, that's a major issue. We talk about it. Sometimes we're able to even laugh about it. Uh, But it is something we have to do everything we can to address. The partnership between state departments and federal are doing a great job of trying to get them off the landscape. Um, They flew helicopters just this last week and were able to take several off the landscape. I hear that we're having some wins. We just have to make sure we're not having anybody go back behind us and undermining that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Well, a couple of things that are happening that are not necessarily directly related to HAG um, are like the the, the bills relating to COVID liability and um, also the education reform uh, issues. So Mm -hmm. those are the ones that I see in the news in just the general, you know, on television, uh, nightly news. What what do you think is going to happen with those? And is that going to hold up some of the priorities that we are really passionate about. So um, the Senate was out completely last week because of the snowstorm. And this week seems to be kind of catch up week. Uh, last night they or today, just today, they third read and passed the COVID liability bill. Mm-hmm. Um, they had perfected it a few weeks ago in a late night filibuster. Um, last night they talked about some regulations of protest and, and that kind of thing. Um, today they started talking about school choice. And that's some of those big ticket items you see made the news a lot more than maybe some of the things we've talked about. Um, But you're starting to see some of those big ticket items move. And that's where we're going to see the debate come back between the House and the Senate with what they think is their top priority. Um, And that's where House and Senate leadership have to come together and figure out those things. Um, I think the school choice debate is going to go on for some time. Now, it may go on for some time in one night or it may go for several weeks. And if that's the case, yes, it will take up enough floor time in the Senate that it prevents some other things from getting there. That just means our job is to make sure we got other vehicles available when we do get a little floor time, but I do think there's a, there's an opportunity for that. Because on that school choice debate, um, there's two sides of every issue, and for everybody that loves their school, there's somebody that would wish they had a better school, uh, and each one of those have a perfectly viable point of view in that conversation. Yeah. And every single one of us here and everybody listening was at one point impacted by a school, so we all care about it as well. So it yeah. is a tough conversation. Um, and it doesn't break down neatly along party lines always. It does not. No. That's absolutely right. No. Yeah. Then some, sometimes those are the hardest issues. Yep. Um, because it's if it's something that's just partisan, uh, you you know pretty well where it's going to end and up, and you know where it's going to end up. You're exactly right. Uh, this is not one of those. So. Yeah, and it's urban and it's rural and it's where did where were you educated? Private versus private public. Versus public. Yep. And we like I said, we all have we all were impacted, and therefore we all have a have a belief about it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, we're uh, to the end of our time here, but first we have to have our. Our COVID question, whatever we call it <laughs> We now. called it quarantine question. quarantine question. Hopefully we can uh, get rid of no that name. But there's no more quarantine. Yeah. yeah, we're taking suggestions if you have a new name sure. for the quarantine <laughs> question. Yeah, we'll, we'll come up with something better than that. Um, but the question for this week is, um, what is your favorite trashy TV show? And we'll start with Spencer. 
Well, I really thought... So, to be honest, I thought you were going to ask whose job's more fun this week, Spencer's or BJ's. <laughs> um, my, like, guilty pleasure trashy TV show is definitely Hoarders, which will shock a bunch of people, I'm sure, because I'm a You're pretty organized person. Yeah. yeah, no, like, literally. Trashy TV um, show. It, I don't know why I've seen every episode. Um, that's on Hulu. Um, it was something uh, that I that I watched some when we were, like, during doing the stay-at-home order. Um, was it to make you feel better about yourself? I will say people. I watched a few episodes and I was like, man, my house is pretty clean. Like, but also <laughs> well, yeah, in comparison to a garbage heap. But also I like I'm just so intrigued by that whole situation. Like I, I find it very interesting. Um, it also made me really inspired to declutter my whole house. I'm sure it did. So there you yeah. go. Mine's not incredibly fun. It might shock people though, Mr. Oh, Tanksley. There you go. Um all time favorite. It has to go back to, and this will date me, but when we were first married, um, and it was Brett Michaels' Rock of Love. I believe it was on VH1, um, and it was a total guilty pleasure. There was nothing redeeming about it, no. um, but it was quite entertaining. I'm not sure you can find it on any of the streaming services. We talked about what this a shame. slightly beforehand, but um, it may not surprise anybody. There's actually two seasons of this, so apparently love wasn't First found one in work. one more, season. More, more thorns than roses, you might yes. say, one oh, might say. Oh, <laughs> Wow. But that did um, pass some time in our before children. Now there's not a lot of time. um, Yeah, that's a problem. If I'm taking the television, it's usually for a sporting event at this point. Is VH1 still a thing? It is. I was on vacation um, over the weekend and turned on cable television, not something I normally watch. And yes, VH1 is still a thing. They were playing movies. So it was like Wayne's World. Still no video hits. Speaking of of Wayne's World, I watched it for the first time like a month ago. Congratulations. It was all right. Uh, <laughs> it was all right. So disappointing. It was okay. So you watched it just to understand the Super Bowl commercial, I right? really just yeah. – no, I watched it actually before the Super Bowl. Oh, I knew okay. – I, I, and I know who the characters are, but anyway, um, Mr. Bowl. <laughs> yeah, so as you guys know, I barely watch any TV. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I do watch a lot of uh, when, I, when I watch TV is survival shows, um, but not like Survivor. Or um, Survivor's you know, a great show, you like by the way. Or Bear Grylls, not, or not no, that. that guy's You're fake. talking like Naked and like Afraid. Naked and Afraid, <laughs> or Survivor Man, yeah. or Alone. I was going to say, what's the they, Alone? They yeah. are oh, literally alone blew my by mind. themselves yeah. in the middle of nowhere with nothing. Yeah. Um, now, I, I, I could argue that that's actually educational, and I'm learning something there. For, just in case, yeah. Just the in op- case, the, the just in case the apocalypse happens. happens. Exactly. Yeah. If I end up in the middle of Canada with no clothes and a machete, just hypothetically, what would I do? And just now the case. reality is, I couldn't survive like one Missouri summer night outdoors by myself with clothes. And you a might surprise yourself. But, you know, I, I like to con- convince myself that it's not just pure entertainment value i'm really learning something so what have you what what fine lessons have you learned from a oh i could thing? start a fire no problem yeah it looks with what easy. with what material <laughs> wow uh, spencer bringing the heat today <laughs> bringing the heat well, you, fire you i'm rod. just full of them today <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean if you if you come with a lighter it's pretty easy right well so that's why i, I was asking that. so now like, do you fly with a lighter in your pocket just uh, in case no that's not but allowed I probably should yeah. yeah. Uh, so yeah, I haven't. I couldn't haven't say that I've listened? like done anything that <laughs> I've learned, but I feel like if I got, if I woke up with amnesia in the middle of nowhere, like I, I would at least have some 
idea of what I ought to do. But wouldn't if you had amnesia, wouldn't you have forgotten Not what you learned on the show? Not if it was just short time. I get it. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, right. yeah exactly. Okay. Like Sorry. Just how I got dropped off. We are down a rabbit hole. You're really asking too many detailed questions. I'm sorry. About this. I'm all about the surviving until it's like six inches or like six feet of snow everywhere. Oh, or yeah. less like, than sixty yeah, that's degrees. The thing with I'm alone. Out. They drop them off. It's in, beautiful weather. Yeah, it's I like loved October it. No. in like either Mongolia or Canada or Argentina. But when the lake froze and over, I'm tapping gets, out. Yeah, it's I'm like literally 50 degrees below zero. That's I'm like, uh, no. The first three <laughs> weeks were no like coat? vacation. No. No, coat, no nothing. No. No, Mm-mm. it's awful. Well, Cannot do it. Well, they do, I, they do have a coat. I'm cold that. at yeah. 60 degrees. Yeah, below zero. But above zero. Yeah. And they're out there like ice fishing. It's just awful. Elizabeth's giving us the signal to wrap this up. I'm telling you, the first up. three weeks were a vacation. No, after, like, after, the, after the lake froze, I'm out. Elizabeth just has. She's jealous because she wants to watch Elizabeth, what's your favorite TV show? Trashy TV show. Yeah, you have to answer. We'll tell the viewers. Okay, I hate I hate to admit this because I think I have taste sometimes, but my favorite trash TV show is Riverdale, which is absolutely a soap opera. It is total garbage. It is poorly acted. It is candy-colored garbage, and I watch it every week, and I love it so much. Never seen it. Wow. <laughs> Never heard oh. of it. Thanks that, for joining us on the podcast, Elizabeth. Terrible. Well, thank you all for joining us. Um, now that you have some great things to go watch, um, <laughs> mostly Brett Michaels, well, it was a rock of love. Rock, rock of, of love. love. Yeah, um, I'm sure that you will have no time for the next episode, but <laughs> hopefully we will be back to you soon. Um, we uh, will also be seeing you at our virtual legislative briefing series every other Thursday for the rest of the legislative session. Please check those out. Information is on our website or actually on our Facebook page is the best place to find it. Thanks for joining us. We'll talk to you soon. Yeah, one last plug before we go. Sorry, Eric, is there are a lot of things going on. Please tune into our newsletter. Sign up for it on our website. (laughs) This really is a time where there is a ton going on. And between the virtual legislative briefings, it's the best way you can get information from us. We're sending that on a weekly basis. We're, We're keeping you up with the issues that we're working on. So please take this opportunity to go to our website, sign up for that newsletter, because we want to make sure you know the things we're working on, and that's the best way to get the most up-to-date information. Yep, you can go to mofb.org slash newsletter to sign up, and you'll sign you up for our weekly newsletter as well as legislative action alerts. Yeah, and and that um, newsletter goes out every Friday afternoon, and it also has the information about the virtual legislative briefing series. So definitely sign up for that. All right, well, thank you again for joining us. We will talk to you soon. Thanks a lot. Bye.